If you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find Luke chapter 9. I don't plan these things, but this is an incredible text for dedicating babies on Sunday. Uh, and I'll show you why, because it's also a perfect Halloween text. So very seldom in your preaching planning do you think baby dedication, Halloween, let's bring them together. So we just trust the Lord as he leads us and guides us here as we discover his will for our church and what he wants to teach us. So uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We just got a couple messages left here as Jesus has been training the 12 disciples. Uh, this is a very uh, important section here in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in Luke 9, uh, taking a look there at verse 37 all the way down to 45. Uh, this is an account that, just like the Transfiguration, is, is seen in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke's account is a little bit different in that Luke takes this whole story. It's about twice as long in Mark's account, and Luke really compresses it. Uh, if you're reading through the Gospels, this is probably somewhat of a familiar passage. You've heard probably some quotes from this uh, passage in your own kind of Bible reading before. Uh, this event happens directly after the Transfiguration, which we looked at last week, which was um, a very significant, subjective, and essentially private moment for the lives of James, uh, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus on the mountain. And we ended that passage looking at uh, the voice from heaven as the cloud descends, commanding obedience and listening to the word that Jesus has been giving us. Well, this text continues the theme that we've seen all the way from about verse 18 forward. From verse 18 to where we are now today in verse 37, there's only been nine days. This is the ninth day since Jesus has introduced the idea of his impending uh, rejection, betrayal, suffering, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Uh, and what we've been wrestling with in essentially the central section of Luke chapter 9 is how we understand the identity of Jesus who keeps introducing us to ideas that don't make sense to the disciples. Have you found that? That in your Christian life you don't understand all there is about Jesus? Yeah, like we all, we all have that, right? We all have, a, I have a little bit of understanding, but we continue throughout the course of our lives to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. So, as I said, Luke takes this account and he compresses it. Uh, previous, or right on the tail end of the transfiguration, in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus talks about who John the Baptist is and how he's connected to Elijah. In this passage, you have uh, left out the argument between the disciples and the scribes that Jesus um, and Counters as he comes down the mountain. You have virtually none of Jesus' conversation with the man who is the uh, father of the boy who's being tormented by a demon, who cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Luke leaves that out too. Luke uh, also leaves out the postscript to this miracle where Jesus debriefs with the disciples about why they can't cast out the demon. Luke leaves all of that out essentially to compress the account and get us to focus on something very, very important. This text is a total Total contrast to the transfiguration. The transfiguration happens high up on a mountain with a divine son receiving the commendation of heaven with light and glory everywhere. This event happens at the bottom of the mountain in a valley with a son who's tormented by darkness where Jesus is not visible. Nobody knows what's going on and everyone is helpless. 
So as you read this text, you feel the spiritual burden and weight as you, as you kind of make your way through it, as you read the experiences of the people in this passage. But essentially what Luke does in this passage through this miracle is leverage the experience to teach us a lot about what it's like to walk with Jesus when we can't see him. Have you found that you don't have the visible hand of Christ guiding you from event to event to event in your day? That you have to walk through life many times uncertain of what's going on, unable to accomplish the spiritual good that you think ought to happen, inept to be able to create the spiritual change in your life that you want to change or to change the situations and circumstances that you find yourselves in. To wrestle with the apparent absence of Jesus is what this passage is all about. And Jesus is going to confront us and teach us and challenge us really to a, a really essential part of our discipleship and growing with Jesus. And he's going to do it through this incredibly difficult um, situation of a son who's oppressed by a demon. What you have in this passage is two of the most significant weighty realities that we've seen in this book and they're put right together. In the oppression and the hatred and the anger of a demon for humanity that falls upon a child. And what you have is Jesus descend from the mountain to encounter and to free this boy. All right? So let's see what God might have to teach us here today. Would you pray with me? Father, we pause for just a moment and remember uh, how precious children are to you. We look through your word and see how often that you use them as examples of the faith that we ought to have. We remember that as we pray for our own kids that we long for you to do things in their lives that only you can do and that through our feeble attempts to parent them, to encourage them, and to point them in faithfulness to your word and to your person, we acknowledge that we come to the end of our ability so often, but we come to a God who cares and to a God who hears us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And we come in great confidence, knowing that you want more for our children and you love us more than we could imagine. So we lay these expectations and hopes out before you as we look at a text like this. We pray for the next generation that's represented in this room that they might come to a new understanding of who you are through your word here today. We pray for the parents in this room who disciple this next generation, have kids of all ages who right now today are praying for spiritual realities to come to light in the lives and hearts of their children. And Father, we pray that you would honor those prayers, that you would uh, show yourself glorious and that we might gain a greater understanding of who you are as a result of this text here this morning. So Father, we come as dependent and hopeful and in many ways helpless to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish in our own lives. And we pray that by your grace and your goodness, you might do things that would cause us to stand up and say to God, be the glory. So Father, bless us as we study here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 37. Y'all there? If not, if you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Hard for you to take notes on the screen, though. So get a piece of paper 
uh, and let's see what God would have to say. Look at Luke 9:37. On the next day. Now, as you're reading all the way through the book of, uh, of I'm sorry, of chapter 9, as I said, Luke has been using time markers. And since verse 18, and since that initial introduction of Jesus as the Son of Man who's going to be delivered and rejected and handed into the hands of sinners, uh, Luke has decided to mark time so that the transfiguration happened eight days after that initial conversation. This event happens in reference to the transfiguration the very next day. So with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus descending from the mountain, you have kind of the aura of the glorious um, vision that they have been given in Moses and Elijah and Jesus and the cloud and all of that happening. And as a reader of Luke, you leave a very glorious event, don't you? Imagining what was that like for these men? What was it like to experience Christ un unveiled in his glory? And as they come back down the mountain, you see how Luke begins this story. A great crowd met them. The, the glory of Jesus is something that happens very rarely in, in uh, the course of Jesus' public ministry in those three years. The transfiguration happens one time, but what you discover in Jesus' ministry is that he very often is with people. He very often is with the people who struggle the most. Jesus' ministry is not primarily dictated by being glorious high up on a mountain, but, but dictated by being with people at the bottom, being with people in the valley, being with people who suffer and struggle to know and understand what God might be doing in their life. So as such, the miracles of Jesus are punctuated shots of lightning in the narrative, where his entire landscape is uh, essentially veiled in darkness. This son of man comes into the incarnation ministering to people in the most difficult of situations, ministering in the hardest, um, most uh, reticent to believe in Jesus and who he is, but Jesus still comes. And aren't we glad that Jesus comes down from the mountain into the difficult places, aren't we? Aren't we glad that he doesn't stay on the mountain and shout down, hey, believe more, but that Jesus descends. And this is where you find Jesus coming back to the thing that he's done the entire course of his ministry is being with people who need him. So as he descends from the mountain, he comes down and a great crowd meets him. In verse 38, here's what Luke says. Luke uses a word that's a pay attention word. He's used it a couple times before, but he says, behold, if you remember the leper that Jesus cleanses. He says over in that passage, I think earlier in Luke, and he says, behold, a leper in the city. Which means you're supposed to pay attention to that. Behold, a woman from the city is sitting down with Pharisees. It's a, it's a significant reality. So as Jesus encounters this crowd, behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, the identity of Jesus has been something we've continued to wrestle with in Luke, haven't we? Even when Jesus confronts the disciples, he says to the disciples, Who do the crowd say that I am? Well, it's John the Baptist or Elijah or another prophet back from the dead. And Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, I'm the Christ. And then Jesus uh, gives his own definition, his own uh, designation of his identity where he says, well, I'm the son of man. And the son of man is about to experience these things. But when Jesus is called teacher, often when Jesus is called teacher, it's on, in the mouths of those who don't believe who he is. They limit his deity to somebody who's a powerful preacher who has really insightful things to say or maybe teaches fancy parables. The Pharisee at the table with the sinful woman calls Jesus teacher. And as such, this man calls Jesus teacher. So as Jesus descends the mountain from the place of absolute divine heavenly commendation 
as Jesus has told us that he is the Daniel 7 son of man, as Peter has told us, he is the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah who is to come. You're sort of surprised as Jesus comes back down into sinful humanity, into the normal places of life, and he's just simply called teacher. But this man may just have a limited understanding of Jesus and who he is, and he decides to call Jesus. And he says, Jesus, please, I beg you, look at my son. The man with leprosy begged Jesus. The garrison demoniac begged Jesus. And this man is in similar straits as we'll see in a such situation. But he's just, he's begging Jesus. He's crying out to Jesus. Jesus, look at my only son. Luke heightens the tension in a passage like this by referring to him as the only son. We've seen only children in the past as Jesus has raised the widow's son from the widow of Nain as he was the only son. As Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, he was the, she was the only daughter. So as the reader, we come to an encounter where this, this uh, father is begging on behalf of an only child. We're all paying attention because when the only child shows up, in Luke, Jesus is about to do something incredible. So, please look at my only child. And as I said, this man is in a situation that combines really the most vulnerable with the most horrific. He's in a situation that combines demonic oppression with a child who's experienced this oppression his entire life. Over in Matthew, we learn that this event has been happening and occurring to this boy since childhood. We don't know how old he is here, but it's continuously afflicted him. Look at verse 39, how this man describes the situation he's in. And behold, a man gives you his own behold. As if to say to Jesus, please look, please pay attention, which is what that word means when he asks Christ to look on. It's only used one other time in the book of Luke, and it's used in the mouth of Mary when Mary prays and says, he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. It means to give special attention to. Parents, you pray, pray prayers like that for your own kids? Jesus, would you pay special attention to this boy, to this girl that you've given to our family for this time and this place? You have prayers like that? Or we go, oh God, I... I I am asking that you would look upon this boy in a special, look upon this girl in a special way. Well, here's where this father is. Please look upon him. Behold, verse 39. Let's see the situation the boy is in. Number one, a spirit seizes him. Literally, he takes him. That the demon itself lays hold of this boy. And the boy's response follows in verse 39 that the boy suddenly cries out. It's not a simple statement to say that the boy cries out, but you can imagine the fear that must grip this boy as the demon lays hold of his body. For the boy, to, it's what blind Bartimaeus does as Jesus passes through Jericho toward the end of this book. He sits on his mat and he screams out to the son of David to have mercy on him. And this boy now in the grip of the demonic cries out and shrieks out as the demon lays hold of him. Number three, it convulses him. It shakes him, literally. It shakes him so that he foams in the mouth and it shatters him, which is a very visceral kind of verb, but it means what it says. It means to crush or to break into pieces. 
So you can feel the emotion on the heart of this man who looks at his boy and watches the demons do whatever they want to his son. You might think that demons would show some element of mercy and restraint when it comes to laying hold of a boy, but there's none here. This boy is totally in the grip of the unmerciful cruelty of the powers of spiritual darkness. And his father feels his son's pain. It shatters him. Not only that, it will hardly leave him. Luke the doctor, it's interesting that the way this is laid out in Luke chapter 9, Matthew describes it as epilepsy. Luke the doctor does not. Luke the doctor says this physical expression has its source in the spiritual realm. So while we don't exactly know how to untangle those things, Luke doesn't try. Jesus treats it as a spiritual symptom expressed in physical ways. But from what we know from this passage that Luke makes it clear that we're more than just our bodies, we're more than just the physical, we also have a spiritual element and these two come together in this story. Now that's bad and it's scary and it's hard to watch and you can imagine as a parent the, the weight that must be upon this man's heart, can't you? That he's in the crowd and he's crying out to Jesus and Jesus is descending from the mountain. But the tension in the passage isn't so much the difficulty that this boy is in. Do you know that? The tension isn't really the difficulty of this situation. Because Jesus has handled the demonic before and he's handled physical diseases before, hasn't he? The real tension of this passage shows up in verse 40. Look at what verse 40 says. I begged your disciples. Who is the man begging? He's begging Christ. And he says, I have a track record. This has been happening for a while. Matthew tells us this has happened to the boy since childhood. But this man makes a point of letting Jesus know that I have been talking, I have been begging the same way, sir, teacher, that I am begging you. I have been begging your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Parents, you know this, but there is nothing that makes you feel more weak as a parent than trying to meet the needs of your child and facing continual failure. I have spent time in the MUSC ER, and I have flashes of memories and we've been there for a variety of reasons, for anaphylactic shock and febrile seizures and broken wrists. And every time I'm in that ER, I am confronted with the fact of how weak I am to be able to handle the issues that are happening to my children. You ever been there? That's where this man is, and he brings him to the only people that he knows to bring him to. He brings him to the people who should be able to handle this issue if you've been reading Luke 9. Right, keep your finger there in Luke 9, just, or just on your previous page. Look back up to Luke chapter 9, verse 1. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I mean, what has happened in 36 verses, boys? I just went up on the mountain, guys. I left you guys here who've been given the secrets of the kingdom. I've given you power to handle these things. 
What's happened? Why is this man begging? Why is this man crying out? Why is this man coming to the very people who ought to be able to handle this problem? And literally, they have no power. What has happened? Well, at least we could say in this passage here that past experience and past success is no guarantee of present success, right? Whatever has happened in Luke chapter 1, I'm I'm sorry, Luke chapter 9 verse 1, somehow is not happening the way it's supposed to here in Luke 9 verse 40. So we know the dad is desperate, the son is tormented, and the disciples are essentially confronted by their inability. Mark says the problem is their lack of prayer. Matthew says their problem is their lack of faith. But what Luke gives us here is a description of the, essentially the thought patterns of the day that the disciples have unfortunately fallen into. Jesus makes a essentially global observation that shows up in verse 41. Let's take a look. Verse 41, Jesus answered, Here's Jesus' response to this man who has tried to bring his son to the disciples who could heal him and who now is crying out to Jesus himself. Jesus responds in verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? You can feel the exasperation in Jesus' voice, can't you? I don't think you can read that verse and not feel the (sighs) in Jesus' tone. So the question is, in many ways, and many of the commentators wrestle with, who's Jesus talking to? Why does Jesus respond this way? And for us to understand the problem that we think at least two groups of people have here, one is the crowd. We know from Luke that the crowds are pretty consistently spiritually insensitive. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. They can't connect Jesus' identity to Jesus' miracles. They love his miracles. They rejoice in his miracles. They marvel and are astonished at the things that Jesus does. But they can't see behind the miracles to make a connection. So as you read this, Jesus gives a somewhat of a global, uh, plural critique of really the entire generation. And on the heels of verse 40, where the man says that the disciples couldn't cast out this spirit, that Jesus must have something to say to the disciples as well. May or may not be the man who comes to him and made this man in Matthew, I believe, crawls out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. So at least he desires to understand and to believe what Jesus is telling him to, but even he has a veiled understanding of Jesus and who he is. So for us to understand the problem that the crowd and the disciples and perhaps this man has, we have to look at the two two adjectives that Jesus gives of this generation. There's two adjectives that Jesus describes this generation to help us see the very problem we have with a total lack of power to handle this situation. I'll take the second one first. The two adjectives are faithless and twisted. Keep your finger in Luke 9 and turn with me to Acts 13 for a minute, also in Luke's writings, to talk about this word twisted. It means crooked. 
and it shows up multiple times in a little vignette of a story over in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, look with me at verse uh, 6. Acts 13 verse 6 says this, When they had gone through the whole island as far as, as, far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, whose name literally means son of Jesus. He was the proconsul, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking, and this is where this word shows up, to twist, to, to be crooked, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, how, will you not stop making, and there's the word again, crooked, the straight paths of the Lord. So in this little story, Luke records for us here the fact that there's a way to approach life that has nothing to do with faith. There's a way to approach life to ignore the truth which so clearly shows up in the ministry of Paul and the apostles. The preaching of Jesus Christ and the truth of who he is characterizes really the core and the kernel of their preaching. So now come back with me to Luke chapter 9. So at least we can say that this is a generation that does not seek for truth. They're not interested in the spiritual perspective on things. But the other one is also important. Because if twisted has to do with not the straight paths of the Lord, the truth of the Lord, and instead a crooked way of going throughout life, this one has to do with trust. So Jesus looks at the generation and says, you're not only twisted, but you're trustless. You're not able to connect the truth of who I am and my identity, the truth of God and what he has said to this situation. Therefore, you have no faith in the things that God has revealed. Now, the word faithless is like, you know the word apathy? Apathos, right? No emotion. This word is apistos. Pistos is faith. So if we reverse it and go, the problem with the people in this generation is that they don't receive the truth and therefore they put no faith and no trust in it, we have to think, what is Luke trying to tell us about faith in his gospel? Faith only shows up like 11 times in all of Luke's writings. But when faith shows up, things happen. When Jesus counsels the centurion about his sick servant and says, Lord, say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus is amazed because he says, not in all of Israel have I found someone with such faith. So when faith shows up, sins are forgiven. When faith shows up in Luke, servants are healed. When faith shows up, it restores a sinful woman's past. When faith shows up, women with issues of blood are made well. So in Luke, faith is incredibly effective and active. It does stuff. It's the ignition to the engine of the spiritual life. So when Jesus encounters faith, and subsequently when Jesus encounters a lack of faith, it's incredibly disturbing to Jesus. 
Jesus rightly expects faith. For there to be a profound lack of power in this situation for the disciples is to reveal something incredibly dysfunctional about their spiritual life. It's to show them they've, they've taken the gasoline from the engine. They removed the spark that creates the opportunity for God to work. And now Jesus looks at the crowd and looks at the disciples and with an exasperated sigh says, this generation doesn't want the truth, nor do they want to have trust. They are faithless. Which tells us that faith is laying hold of a spiritual truth. They lay hold of truths about Jesus and who he is. Why has Jesus spent so much time hammering forth his identity? Because he expects his disciples to put their faith and their trust in him. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for their inadequacy. He doesn't rebuke the disciples in this generation for their lack of power or their lack of ability of you know, running to the demon handbook and how to cast it out. He rebukes them for their lack of faith and their lack of truth. So aren't you glad the text doesn't stop there? Jesus, and thus, Jesus goes back up on the mountain. Right? Aren't you glad that Jesus has something to say? He's better than a faithless and crooked generation. He's better than weak and inept disciples. He's better to this son and to this man who still doesn't understand really who Jesus is. Look at verse, well, do you see the end of verse 41, right? Bring your son to me. Isn't that encouraging? I've brought him to the disciples who should have been able to heal him. I've had this problem since childhood and my son continually is oppressed by this demon who will not let him go and will hardly leave. And it's if Jesus stops the conversation, he says, bring that boy here. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Why do you think that verse is there? How many kids do you think Satan wants to give up? How many kids do you think Satan wants to receive the grace of Christ? How many kids do you think Satan wants to have mercy on? And this demon with all of its power on the way to encounter the Christ, on their way to encounter the Son of Man in whom is all authority over the spiritual realm, he does everything possible to destroy the boy on the way. Charles Spurgeon in talking about this said, I have seen more times than one men experience Spiritual warfare, the worst, right before they come to Christ. And here's this boy in the grip of the demon who throws him to the ground and shakes him. But Jesus, in three successive verbs, totally restores this boy. Just as the demon seizes and shakes and shatters, watch what Jesus does. But Jesus, one, rebukes the unclean spirit. Which speaks to Jesus saying, you have no more authority here. 
Just as Jesus, as he's done throughout the book of Luke, rebukes demons and rebukes diseases, he rebukes this one. Number two, he heals the boy. He puts the boy's spiritual life and physical life back together. So that no longer is this boy's life characterized by demonic oppression, but now he's healed and now he's whole. And number three, you see what, what Jesus does? He gives the boy back to his father. That this boy is now restored, not just spiritually, not just physically, but he's restored socially. Because now he's back in the relationship with his father, and this relationship is totally new. Isn't that good news? Don't you want to stand up and applaud Jesus right here? Now watch this. Verse 33. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The whole crowd responds the same way Peter did. As Peter, we looked last week at 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And you know who sees his majesty now? The crowds. The crowds see the very same thing. What does that tell you? Where Jesus is not transfigured in front of these crowds, is he? Jesus just looks like Jesus. But is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and, the, and forever? Is Jesus the same as he is on the mountain as he is in the valley? Jesus have any problem with geography. Jesus has no problem. So that the whole crowd responds and reacts and sees Jesus do something that causes them to look now upon the majesty of God. And they're all astonished. Now the miracle's amazing. The crowd is astonished. The rest of the people and the disciples, I think, are just probably stunned. And you read this and you might think, all right, well, what's the application of that? Rebuke faithless people, have more faith, receive more miracles. Is that the application? Careful. Look at what Jesus does. This is incredible. Look at the middle of that verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Sounds like what Jesus has said all throughout the course of his public ministry, hasn't it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Literally, Jesus says this time, a little bit of a different way, but kind of more forceful. Literally, put this in your ears. Stick this in there. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus continually, I mean, he just makes bad PR statements. Doesn't he? In the midst of all the astonishment... All the applause, all the restoration, all the powers of darkness being driven away and boys being restored to health and relationship and wholeness, Jesus, you know, my, my, guess what? The son of man. So you notice what Jesus says? Jesus calls himself here. He's not called teacher. So Jesus invites us back to consider his identity once more, doesn't he? He keeps coming back to this identity thing. He keeps wanting to drive this nail home for the disciples so they might understand something about who he is, not just what he does. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And you have to look at this passage and, and you look at it and you go, look at, look at this boy. This boy is totally under the authority of this demon. And Jesus says, I'm about to be handed into the hands of men. How are the hands of men going to treat Jesus? How are the hands of men going to treat this son? This son who has 
the applause of heaven itself will now be handed into the hands of men who will betray him and cause him to suffer and torment him and shatter him and crucify him. And you have to look at these terms and to go, how is it that this is going to happen? Which is, I think, where the disciples are. Look at verse 45. But they didn't understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. You have another string of three verbs. Isn't that interesting? The boy is characterized by seizing and convulsing and shattering. Jesus rebukes and heals and restores. And the poor disciples, here they are. One, they didn't understand. Just as they were faithless, ah, pistos, here they're ah, gnosis. They don't have any knowledge about these things. They don't understand. They're ignorant of what he's saying, which means that what Jesus has been telling them since verse 18, it hasn't penetrated into their perspective on life. They can't understand a suffering Savior. And would we? Can you imagine the miracles that Jesus has done up to this point in raising the dead and forgiving people and healing boys and girls? And all? Would we have suffering servant, suffering Savior on the, for, on the forefront of our mind? But I don't think I would understand. And here the disciples are. They don't have understanding. Though Jesus has told them multiple times, this knowledge hasn't made its way down. Second... It was concealed from them. If you remember, you know the word uh, apocalypse, apocalyptic literature, you know what that word means? That word literally means an uncovering. Apocalypto means to uncover. This is the opposite of that word. This word means to veil, to cover up. And commentators wrestle with this because if nothing else, you look at Jesus' ability to see the future and prophesy the fact that he will be handed into the men. And Peter will talk about in Acts chapter 2 the fact that Jesus is, uh, was delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, was, will be crucified by sinful men. And here the disciples have this exposure to Jesus' identity and it's concealed from them, it's hidden from them, it's covered up for them. And commentators go, who covers it up? Why is it covered up at this point? Shouldn't they understand after nine days of personal discipleship with Jesus? What do you think? How fast do you apply spiritual truths to your life? It takes me more than nine days. Isn't that discouraging? You should go, I'm discouraged by your, you know, by your pastor. That's what you should be saying. You should be faster. And commentators go, maybe it's that God conceals it, but it might be the fact that the disciples haven't worked this awareness of Jesus and his identity into their perspective. So it's just veiled because of preferential things. They view Jesus differently. It's concealed because they're looking not at what Jesus is saying, but at what Jesus is doing. Ultimately, so that they might not perceive it. Perceive has to do with discernment. Which essentially means we understand how the streams of what Christ is saying come together. We can, we can put it together. There's a way of, of kind of synthesizing the truth that we're hearing with our perspective and therefore it gives us perception. Paul uses the term over in Philippians chapter 1 that your knowledge might abound in all kinds of discernment. That you'd be able to put things together. So the disciples see this miracle, they experience their faithlessness and their inability to have trust in who Jesus is. 
Their perspective is informed by the fact that all of their hearing is, is filled with applause and not the rejection that Jesus is saying will come. And ultimately they don't perceive it and they're afraid to ask him about this saying. So why does this text end here? Why does it end this way? Why do you end in such a remarkably down kind of way? When you want to rejoice with the fact that Jesus can overcome the difficulties that are experienced by a crooked and faithless and twisted generation. That Jesus can overcome faithlessness in his disciples. But we end, excuse me, we, they end with their difficulty to understand. And I think the, the thing about a passage like this really is captured in that idea of the same thing that I titled this sermon with, is the, the phrase, they could not. They could not speaks to the disciples' total lack of spiritual power. And we look at this and we think about our own lives. We think about the times that we face spiritual darkness. We face things that we are unable to accomplish. We face things that are knots that we can't untie. And what Jesus shows us here is that he doesn't rebuke them again for their inability. He knows they have no ability. He rebukes them for their lack of faith, which tells us that spiritual problems in our lives, I, I hope you've discovered this, I have discovered this with great, great difficulty in my own life, is that many times the spiritual issues that I struggle with, the spiritual issues that we fight for in our church, the spiritual complexities that characterize life in a sinful world, they can't be fixed by human ingenuity. They can't be fixed by human reasoning. They can't be fixed by human economic spending power. They can't be fixed by new and insightful methodologies. Because life in a sinful world with Satan as the accuser and the enemy is too great of a problem for God's people. The issues in your life that you are facing right now in many ways have spiritual roots that you can't see and can't untangle in your own strength. And one of the greatest blessings in my life and I think in the lives of many in our church is that they have come to the end of their human reasoning, their physical power, their mental intellect, and have discovered times where they could not accomplish the things that they ought to accomplish. Amen? where we have come to the end of our ability and we have discovered the emptiness of our own spiritual life. And we all have prayers like this. We all have prayers where we essentially cry out to God and go, God, would you look upon my Would you help this situation that I have no strength to fix? God, would you do something that I cannot do? God, would you intervene in a way that I can't? 
Isn't it interesting that this man brings his situation to the disciples who ought to have faith and do not? See, as I meditated on this passage, I come to the point where I recognize this is a passage that's all about spiritual power. This passage is all about the times in our lives when we come to the end of our ability and we recognize all we have is trust in the truth. See, this passage ends with Jesus telling the disciples again of his coming rejection, betrayal, suffering, and crucifixion, and them just not understanding it. And it's going to, in chapter 18, they're going to be the same thing. They're still not going to get it. But what is it that actually gives us spiritual power? What is it that when we come to the end of our physical and mental and psychological and emotional rope gives us hope? What causes God to look upon people who cry out as helpless and to actually give them grace? It's what Jesus does here. See, we don't come to God confident in our own ability. We don't come to God with full faith and confidence in the truth many times. Amen? We come to God as desperately in need. And the thing that causes God's gaze to turn and to look upon people who have impossible situations is the sun that goes to the cross for them. The thing that causes God's face to turn and to look is the same thing that Paul talks about when he faces his own messenger of Satan that is sent to him to torment him. And three times he cries out to the, for God to take it from him and God says, no, I will not take it. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It is good for you to be weak. It is good for you to be at the end of your rope. It is good for you to know that my grace that comes because of what Jesus has done for you is sufficient for all of your needs. It's sufficient to know that I have grace because of what Jesus has done for me. Therefore, I can come to Jesus with hands open, hands empty, hands unable, hands uncertain, hands unaware of what even God is going to do in this situation when I'm confronted with my failure because Jesus failed. He went to the cross and everybody mocked him. Everybody ran away. Everybody yelled that if you are the Christ, come down from the cross and it's in that failure in the public square that became the greatest confidence of the Christian. That Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Therefore, Jesus looks upon me and God looks upon me with grace and with favor. And I don't need to be strong. That I can pray you ever pray torpedo-sized prayers? Not like throw pencils at the ceiling prayers, but you pray, oh God, I am at the end of my rope, and there's nobody who can fix this. Even the people who said they have faith, who don't have faith, can't fix this situation, but I can come to you because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and I can come because of your grace, and oh God, would you look at this situation and pay special attention to me because you said you would. See, that's what the disciples have to learn. 
The disciples go into this situation. They don't go in with the demon handbook. They don't go in with their past experience. They come in and they get humbled. They get embarrassed. But they discover as they bring them to Jesus, he is more than sufficient and more than powerful to even free a boy from a demon who shatters him. So you're going to walk out this week and you're going to have some failure in your life. You're going to have some job failure, some economic failure, some family failure, some kid. It could be a kid. It could be some situation where you go, God, I've reached the end of my ability, that I have come to the end of me. And oh God, would you look upon this boy, this girl, this situation. And because of what Jesus has done for me, who had the courage to go to the cross on my behalf, would you look in a special way on this situation? And that's exactly where God wants his disciples to be. Let's pray. Father, we pause and confess our inability in so many situations that are recognized in this room. Situations with kids and situations with friends and situations in our own lives where we constantly are confronted with the truth of our failure, with the truth of our inability. But Father, thank you so much that you sent your son who had the courage and the willingness to experience failure on our behalf that we might be brought in and we might become sons, that we might become daughters, that you now look upon us in a special way because of what Jesus has done. And Father, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the very power of God. Would that be the things that we sing about here? That though we face oppression and difficulty in a crooked and twisted and faithless generation, would you find us clinging to the truth that Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and risen for sinners, is the very power of God? And Father, would that characterize our prayers, that that truth would shape us and would grow our faith and cause us to cry out to you in confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.